I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Our series is called Following Jesus, and we have been following Jesus all the way through the Gospel of Matthew to that last crucial week in Jerusalem. We have followed Jesus as he rode into town on Sunday, hailed as the Messiah. Hosanna! We followed Jesus as he tossed the tables in the temple. We followed Jesus as he has tussled with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, and anybody else who wanted to challenge his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus was left standing, and they were left speechless. But Jesus was not speechless. In chapter 23, Jesus denounced the seemingly upright teachers of the law and the Pharisees for really being fake and wrong and evil. He called them hypocrites, blind guides, snakes. And he said one word over them. Woe. Woe to you. Jesus pronounced woe upon them and upon Jerusalem, the exact opposite of flourishing. In fact, he pronounced judgment. At the very end of chapter 23, Jesus said, Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And right there, At the end of chapter 23, Jesus predicted both judgment upon Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple, as well as his own return. And that's exactly what chapters 24 and 25 are all about. Judgment upon Israel and the return of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you get to talking about the return of Christ... Things get both exciting and confusing. One of you told me that you read Matthew 24 yesterday and you were scratching your head. You're not alone. So was I. Prophecy is very exciting because you are studying very important things that are still to come. But it's also very complex. There are a lot of details in prophecies that can be difficult to organize and harmonize and put in the right order. And Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, have disagreed with each other throughout the history of the church on exactly how those details work together. Now, the main outline is very clear. Jesus is coming back. Amen? And He is really coming back. Not just figuratively, not just metaphorically. He's coming back, literally. He's coming back personally. The same Jesus who went is the same Jesus who will come back. He's coming back bodily, that is, in his new resurrected body. The same, Je- the same body in which he was resurrected, he will return in. It's not just some kind of ephemeral spiritual thing, return. It'll be real in every sense of the word. And it will be glorious. He will return as judge and king. But the timing of that return and the timing of the events surrounding that return have been hotly debated by faithful, Bible-believing Christians for the last 2,000 years. So I've got to tell you this morning, I do not plan to solve those debates this Sunday or any Sunday in the next few weeks. I do plan to lead us through Jesus' longest teaching on eschatology, on the end times, in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. 
I don't have the last word on these words, but I believe every last word of them. And they are some of the most important last words on last things. This, friends, Matthew 24 and 25, is Jesus' own teaching on Jesus' own return. How exciting is that? Jesus' own teaching on Jesus' own return. Now, we have studied this teaching at this church before on Sunday mornings. When, when we did the Gospel of Mark back in 2006, anybody remember 2006? That was a while ago. And when we did the Gospel of Luke back in two, 2011, that's a little bit more recent, but still a long time ago. But this is the first time for me to take you all the way straight through Matthew 24 and 25. I think it's going to take us at least up to Christmas time. We'll take a break when we get up close to Christmas to celebrate the holiday. But we're going to be in Matthew 24 and 25 for a while. Now, I'm no expert on prophecy. But I've been studying really hard to prepare for this part of the Gospel of Matthew. I've read several books this year to get my mind and heart set to lead you through this. And this week, these have been my friends and companions. I have holed myself up with books from faithful pastors and great Bible scholars with names like D.A. Carson, Warren Wearsby, David Jeremiah, Paul Feinberg, Dwight Pentecost, John Walvoord, George Ladd, Michael Wilkins, Grant Osborne, Craig Keener, F.F. Bruce, Robert Gundry, Lou Barbieri, Douglas Moo, Gleason Archer, Charles Quarles, R.T. Franz, Douglas O'Donnell, and Andreas Kostenberger. Now, some of those names you may have heard of, some of them you've never heard of. Some of them you wish you still hadn't heard of them, right? It's amazing to me on what they agree and yet how much they disagree. Now, they agree on the Bible. All these guys believe in the Bible, every word of it. And they all believe in the return of Christ, every word of it. They all believe in Matthew 24 and 25, but they don't put all the details together in the same way. There's two extremes. On, on one side, there's a number of people who believe that just about everything in Matthew 24 and 25 has already happened. It's called preterist. It's, it's, it's in the past, okay? At least by the first century, everything and almost everything in Matthew 25, 24 and 25 have already happened. And then there's an extreme on the other side, or what seems like an extreme to me, and that is that almost everything in Matthew 20, 24 and 25 is still in the future. It, it hasn't happened yet, and it won't happen until the very end. Now, my view is that the truth is somewhere in the messy middle, because that's kind of how the Bible seems like to me, right? It, it's never as cut and dried as, as we would like it to be. Jesus is teaching, I think, about things that have happened in the first century, are happening, even right now, and will happen in the future. And as we go through it, I'll try to show you what I mean and which things I think are which. Today, I just want to read and study the first 14 verses. Matthew 24, 1 through 14. We're just going to dip our toes into the water today. But before we read it, I want to give you the two most important principles that will focus our time together over the next several weeks. Neither should be very surprising if you've been with me any time, but they are still easily missed. First, this is the Gospel of Matthew, so what do we need to do? Keep your eye on the ball, right? 
This is not just a teaching about the return of Christ. This is a teaching by Christ about Christ. Who is Jesus? Always be asking that question when you're reading the Gospel of Matthew. Who is Jesus? And the second key principle is that when Jesus teaches on the end times, he is primarily interested in application, not information. Application, not information. Jesus, this is maddening about Jesus, but this is the way it is. Get used to it. Jesus does not tell us everything we want him to tell us. Jesus tells us everything we need him to tell us. And he is focused on our hearts and our lives. He's after your heart. Right? The exact opposite of the Pharisees. They were outside only. And Jesus was penetrating. He was getting at the heart. And he wants to transform our hearts so that we live differently. In other words, eschatology exists to change us. Eschatology exists to change us, to form us, and change us as people. Jesus' teaching on his return is always meant to get our hearts in a certain place, to transform our hearts, and to have lives that flow out of those changed hearts. Amen? He's not just interested in giving us information. Okay, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. He's interested in our transformation. He doesn't just want to tell us what's going to happen. He's going to tell us how to live because it's going to happen. You're going to be amazed at how many times Jesus says, do this, don't do this, be like this, don't be like that. Especially at the points where you're like, just tell me the answer, Jesus. I just want to know this. He's going to say, where's your heart? Because that's where he's always going. So even if we get confused over some of the details, and we probably will, strike that, we definitely will, I promise to confuse you. The application of this teaching can still change our hearts and lives. So you ready? Let's pray together and then dive in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it it gets at the heart. It divides joints and marrow. It's it's living and active. It's a two-edged sword. It's like... It's like a scalpel that gets into our heart and does the needed spiritual surgery. I pray that even as we are seeking answers for the end of all things, that we concentrate on what you want to say to our hearts so that we live now in light of then. I pray for clarity. I pray, for, I pray that I would... I would uh, Be very careful in how I present what I've seen. I pray for humility and confidence and joy in the Lord who has given us these words. He's given us these words. The front of our bulletin says, His words will never pass away. The The whole world will pass away, but His words will never pass away. That's right here in this chapter. So help us, Lord, to get into those words that will never pass away, to change our hearts, to change our lives in light of the return of Jesus the Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 1. Look at the text. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. 
Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It seems that Jesus is leaving the temple in judgment. Do you remember this from last week? Remember, there's no chapter divisions in Matthew's original gospel. He didn't say, this is chapter 23 and this is chapter 24. The end of chapter 3 flows right into chapter 24. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus has said, your house will be left desolate, Israel. And you won't see me again until my blessed return. And he's turned his back on the temple and he's walking away. His disciples don't want him to walk away. They're in awe of the temple. You kind of see them kind of running up and pulling on his, on his uh, jacket. You know, Jesus, stop. Stop. Look, look at the temple. You know, the temple. These guys are in awe of the temple. They come up to him and they point out the buildings. Just, just look. Jesus, this temple, it's glorious. These were pretty amazing buildings. This was uh, Herod's rebuilt temple. Do you remember that? There was the temple in the Old Testament. It was destroyed, right? Herod, Herod the Great goes on like a multi-decade building project to rebuild this temple. And when he was done, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was amazing. The, um, this book here is by a guy named Josephus. Have you ever heard of Josephus? He was a, um, a historian, a Jewish historian, not a Christian historian, but a Jewish historian in the first century, okay? And uh, this is a tiny little type. I did not read it this week. Uh, don't worry. But this is what he has to say about the temple. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. Josephus says, when the sun comes up, you can't look at the temple. Because it's just blinding. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. Because you know how like snow reflects light, you know? So up on this temple mount is this temple and there's so much gold. When they're coming from far away, they look at this temple and they're like, what's that? Is that a snow-covered mountain? No, that's our temple. From, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So if it wasn't gold, it was white. From its summit protruded sharp, ready for this one, golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. Okay, you got your spikes to keep the pigeons off the roof, right? But they're gold spikes. Okay, that's what this temple is like. Then he says some of the stones in the building, the stones were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. Now, I'm not good at math, but I figured that out to be 67 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. The stones, okay? They're like boxcar-sized stones that they had drug up onto the Temple Mount to build this thing, okay? And it's gold everywhere. Now, most of these disciples were from where? They're from the north. They're not from down in Jerusalem. They're from the north, right? They were, they were from Pinchy, okay? And they'd never seen anything like it, okay? They were like, Gomer Pyle going to New York City. Like, Shazam! Well, golly, Jesus, you ever see a temple like this? And what's Jesus doing? 
Sorry for you pinchyites. I'm picking on you today. Jesus is walking away from it all. He's turned his back on it. Jesus, aren't you sure you don't, you don't want to walk away from this glorious building? You just cleansed it. Earlier in the week, you were tossing temples and saying it was your father's house, and how dare they do this? Now you're turning your back on it? And Jesus says, yep. You see all this? Yeah, it's nice. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Total destruction. The temple took up one, I think it's one-sixth of the landmass of old Jerusalem. It was a wonder of the ancient world. The outer dimensions would cover 12 football fields. Scholars estimate that up to 75,000 people could be accommodated in just the court of the Gentiles. That's five times the size of the Bryce Jordan Center, just in the front court. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. You know the western wall, the wailing wall in Jerusalem? That was actually like a retaining wall, not even part of the actual temple, just kind of holding up a part of the temple on the outskirts. It's about everything that's left there. It's all coming down. Now that's a prediction of the future. At least it was future when Jesus said it, right? It hadn't happened yet. So Jesus is a prophet. And he's a prophet like no other. Now he's not just a prophet. But he is a prophet. He he predicts the future. He's a prophet like the one foretold in Deuteronomy 18. He knows the future, and when he says something is going to happen, that's exactly what's going to happen. Like the fig tree withering earlier in the week. And like this temple being torn down. I'm sure his disciples could, could hardly imagine it. Could hardly imagine it. So his disciples want to know more. They were probably devastated by this prediction. They cared so much about the temple. They wanted the Messiah to protect the temple and to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. But here this person whom they believe is the Messiah is now predicting the destruction of their beloved temple. This probably seemed to them like the end of the world. Like just about nothing worse could ever happen. So they're looking, understandably, for more details. Look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Luke tells us it's uh, uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, we don't know what they understood and what they didn't. They probably thought that all of that in their question was the same thing. The destruction of the temple, the coming of the Christ, and the end of the age. Makes sense. We know now that they are related, but they are not the same. Jesus knew that then, of course, as well. And like I said, Jesus doesn't always tell us what we want to know. He tells us what we need to know. And he tells us what a difference what we need to know should make in our lives. So I haven't told you yet the name of this morning's sermon. All that was an introduction. Don't worry, it's a short sermon. Here's the name of the sermon. 
It's called birth pains. I get that name from verse 8 where Jesus says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. We also call those labor pains, right? Anybody here ever experienced labor pains? We all have. Just some of us were inside at the time, right? No, you know what I mean. How, moms, labor pains. Fun? Like, I, you keep doing it. Now, I, I've never had labor pains, but I've seen people have them. Jesus is going to list several things that are going to happen in the world and to the disciples, and he's going to call them birth pains. What's the deal with birth pains? Birth pains tell you that something big is happening. Amen? Something big is coming. Rayanne is what? Nine and a half pounds, right? Something big. What was it? Nine pounds. Okay. Nine pounds bad enough, Pastor Matt. Yeah. Something big is coming. Right? And they hurt. They're called pains for a reason. They're painful. They are not happy, pleasant things. They are travail. The King James, if you have the King James, it uses the word what? Sorrows. But you know that they're sorrows that lead to joy, right? They're sorrows that lead to joy. They're big sorrows that lead to big joy. When all goes well, after all that pain, you get to hold a little baby. Birth pains tell you that something big is happening. It's definitely happening. They're painful, but after the pain, you have incredible joy. But one more thing. They don't tell you when the baby is actually going to come. They tell you it's going to come. It's inevitable. You got a baby in there. You got pains. At some point, you're going to have a baby out of there. But they don't tell you when. Anybody here ever have false labor, ladies? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. You don't have to tell us your labor stories. You have labor one day, pains one day, and then you think, ho, ho, here we go. Bags are packed. And then the next day, I thought it was going to be today. And it wasn't. And the next day, maybe you have some pains. And, and, and there's a little bit more. And you start to time them, right? Time the contractions. And then they back off again. Who's got the record in here? Anybody in here was in uh, labor, active labor for 24 hours? If you want to tell us. You don't have to tell us. There's one, two. All right, how about 36? Anybody here of 36? Do I hear 36? 36. Uh, 30, uh, 48. Do I have? Does anybody here have active labor for 48? 48 hours. Anybody have been in more, for board, more than 48? Wow. Okay. How long was Mary Beth in labor, Gemmer? Uh, 30 seconds? Something like that. <laughs> the presence of birth pains tells you that you're in the last days of your pregnancy but not much more than that when it comes to timing and jesus says that what these things in verses 4 through 14 are like is they're like birth pains and he also tells us how we should live while we're living in the time of labor i've got three for you this morning here's the first one don't be fooled look at verse 4 Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
So they asked him about the timing. Did, does he answer their question? I don't think so. They asked him about the timing, and they asked him about signs, and he says, don't be deceived, don't be misled, don't be led astray. For many people claiming to be authorized by Jesus, or even to be Jesus himself, will deceive many. Has that happened? It sure has. In fact, it happened in the first century. This is one of those things that happened then. And it's happening right now. And it's going to happen some more. It's birth pain. These deceivers have names like Sun Young Moon and David Koresh and Jim Jones. And they are sneaky and they don't always look like bad people. They sound really good. This week I read a National Geographic article from 2017 about five living people who believe that they are in some way Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. National Geographic article. And the, the crazy thing about it is not that they believe it, but that they have followers, right? People believe that stuff. And of course it doesn't have to be that blatant. There are plenty of false teachers out there who speak in the name of the Lord, but are really leading people astray. The word for deceive there in verse 4 and verse 5 is planeto. Does that sound like anything? Like a planet, which we thought, well, thought were wandering stars, right? So in other words, it's, it's getting off track. Jesus says, don't let anybody get you off track. Are you in danger of getting off track? If you don't think you are, you are. We all are if we don't watch out. See that warning in verse 4? Watch out! Are you watching out? I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to what they're being taught, what they're taking in, what they're believing, what they're following. And that's even by me. Don't just swallow everything I say. I am just a man. Read your own Bible. Check what I say against that. Remember the Bereans in the book of Acts? They were noble because they fact-checked the Apostle Paul. If you have to fact-check the Apostle Paul, you better fact-check Pastor Matt. Christians need to develop discernment because there's a lot of false teaching out there. So is that a sign of the end times? Yes, it's a birth pain. It doesn't tell us that the end is here, but it does say the end is coming. Look at verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Here's number two. Don't be scared. Don't be fooled. And don't be scared. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. I don't know about you, but that's the exact opposite of how I feel when I hear there's a war. I'm alarmed. I get scared. But Jesus says, don't be scared. And specifically, don't be scared that this war means that the return of Christ is here. No, it's just a birth pain. It means that the return is coming, but what does verse 6 say? But the end what? The end is still to come. See, I think we often get that wrong. We hear about these things, this, all these phenomena, and we, we say, well, Jesus must be returning real soon. These are signs of his soon return. But Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying when you hear about these things, don't get upset. 
It doesn't mean that it's the end. If you have the King James, what does it say? The end is not yet. I almost titled this message, The End is Not Yet. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. See, all those things happen in the first century. And all those things are happening right now. And they're going to keep happening. There's going to be more of it. So does that mean that Jesus is coming back soon? Everything means that Jesus is coming back soon. Depends on what you mean by soon. Yes, he's coming back. And soon there are labor pains going on. We feel it. But you can't tell from labor pains exactly how close we are. Ever since Jesus came back from the dead, the last days have begun. But we don't know if we're living in the last of the last days. These are the beginning of birth pains. So don't be scared. I can only imagine what it's like for you ladies when you feel the birth pains. How much fear might be there. What's going to happen? Don't be scared. The whole world is having birth pains. Don't be scared. I think that's the exact opposite of what we normally think about when we think about the end times. Do the end times scare you? They shouldn't. Jesus says, see to it that you're not alarmed. In other words, as much as you've got a say in it, don't let them scare you. Don't let the end times scare you, Christian. Jesus provides this teaching not to frighten us, but to encourage us. The end times should bring us hope. The end times should produce in us peace. Eschatology should give us joy. Here's why. I've read the end of the book, and Jesus wins. And we win because we're with Jesus. Don't be scared. It's so easy to look out on this world and be scared. There's a lot of trouble in this world. Yes, there is. Jesus said it would be so. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have nothing to fear. At the end of all these birth pains is glorious joy that far outweighs all the trouble. Look at verse 9. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Yes, it's going to get hard. There will be trouble. Persecution, tribulation, trials, executions, hatred. Fun times. Not so much. Just last week, we prayed for the persecuted church, right? And that could be us anytime. Jesus says to be ready for it. Why? Why? Keep your eye on the ball. Why would we be hated by all the nations? Why would Christians be hated by different people groups out there? What does he say in verse 9? Because of me. Yeah. Because of my name. Because we belong to Jesus. Keep your eye on the ball. This is about Jesus. Even your pain, even your death is not about you. It's about him. Verse 10. 
At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. What does that sound like? When does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the New Testament to me. Read your New Testament. These things happened in the first century. And it also sounds like today. These are birth pains. They were true in the first century, and they've been true every century since. Josephus here chronicles all of them. If you want to just read through Josephus, probably not in this edition, the words are too small. You will see all these things happened in the first century. And if you scroll down your social media feed, you'll see them today. Many are turning away from the faith. The the largest religious group growing in the United States are the nuns, not the Catholic nuns, N-U-N, but the N-O-N-E-S. In other words, no affiliation. I don't know anything about this Jesus stuff. I'm not a Christian. I'm a nun. Put me in the nun category. No religion. Many are turning away from the faith. This summer, a former pastor named Joshua Harris announced that he no longer is a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of Josh Harris. I loved his books. I, I would recommend them. I quote them from sermons and sermons. I gave them to a bunch of you when you graduated from high school. Here, read this book on relationships. Josh Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Boy Meets Girl. Take this book. This is really good stuff. No longer. Josh has turned away from the faith. Hopefully he'll come back. Let's pray for that. But we shouldn't be surprised that people apostatize. Jesus said it would happen. Right here in Matthew 24. And professing Christians at each other's throats? That's happening too. False prophets, false teachers in churches, in the radio, in books, on TV, on the internet. But this is not a reason to be scared. That's a reason to be wary. Don't be deceived. Watch out. Be discerning. But not to run away. Instead, we run to Jesus. Look at verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Number three and last, don't grow cold. The answer to all of this apostasy and false teaching is to run towards Jesus, to run towards good teaching, to run towards faith, to run towards loving Him. The answer to all this falling away is to stand firm. You see how Jesus is focused on our hearts? Has he answered their question? I don't think so. Hasn't been a win yet. Hasn't been a sign yet. Instead, he said, let's talk about your heart. Stand firm. Don't be fooled. Don't be scared. And don't let your heart grow cold. Keep your heart warm towards the Lord. Keep pursuing Him. Keep praying. Keep meeting with Him. Keep focusing on Him. Keep trusting Him. That's what genuine believers do. That's why he says, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not because you've somehow earned your salvation by making it to the end, but because real faith keeps trusting in the Lord. Stand firm to the end. Either to the end of your life or to the return of Christ, whichever comes first. Because Jesus wins. Look at verse 14. And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world 
as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Not yet. But someday, someday when the Lord decides that the preaching of the gospel has been heard in the whole world, then the end will come. But for now it's birth pains. Someday the Great Commission will be fulfilled. We won't need the pictures on the back of the wall because the Great Commission will be fulfilled. We won't need to share the gospel with our friends and family because the gospel, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. There's a promise here that the Great Commission to go to all those nations, all the nations that hate us because of Jesus, all the nations will hear that Jesus Christ is King and then the end will come. Now, I think that's also a birth pain. I think a case can be made that this also happened in the first century with the preaching of Paul as he made it around to the known world. I think a case can be made it's also happening. It's been happening every century since. But Jesus says that one day it will all be over. And we need to hang on for that day. Stand firm. Preach the gospel. Take that good news to this needy world this week. Stand firm and stay warm in Christ while we wait for His return. Amen? Let's pray together. You can't stay warm unless you've gotten warm in the first place. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are outside of all these promises. And His return will be a terrible, awful thing for you for all eternity. It doesn't have to be. We invite you to turn in your heart and trust in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. He died to give you new life, life forever with Him. We invite you to receive him as your Savior and Lord, even right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this firm and sure word. Thank you for how it goes after our hearts. Help us in our hearts to be changed by it. To not live differently because we've listened today to your word. To not be fooled. To not be scared. To not grow cold. But instead to... Stand firm and say, it is well with my soul. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.